Did you ever have a work meeting that you knew was going to be super tense? Maybe you had to tell your boss something unpleasant, or you'd been butting heads with a coworker and needed mediation, or maybe you were on a very tight project deadline. Then you can probably sympathize with General George R. Crook in July of 1883. He had just wrapped up one of the most successful moves of his entire career, a massive operation that had achieved more than anyone else had dreamed possible. It had been a huge undertaking, and he should have been back at his post, relaxing, writing reports, and overall winding down. Instead, he had returned only to find that guy who always microwaves popcorn in the break room was causing headaches for everyone, and it threatened the project that Crook had been slaving over for the past several months. Things just kept escalating to the point that the only solution was for Crook's supervisor and that guy's supervisor to get together in a room and hash everything out. That's why, instead of being in sunny Arizona, Crook found himself in Washington, D.C. that summer day in 1883. He had been called to the boss's office, too, and had to defend everything that he had just done. But unlike your average staff meeting... This gathering was to decide the fate of an entire group of people who, even then, weren't sure if they were welcome guests or prisoners of war. So, no pressure. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 98, Back to San Carlos. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we rode along with Crook and nearly 200 of his Apache scouts as they managed to find the renegade Chiricahua Apache in their stronghold in the Sierra Madres, which surprised them enough to cause them to agree to return to San Carlos. And despite a relatively weak position, Crook had even made Geronimo temporarily cower, and he was in high spirits as his group, with more than 300 Chiricahua in tow, made it back to Arizona on June 10, 1883. But, and this is important, like I said last week, Crook didn't have all the Apache. At least 60 men, including Geronimo, Nietzsche, Chato, and others were not with the group, having broken off with the promise to gather more scattered Apache and then catch up with the column eventually. Captain Emmett Crawford was sure that these men were maybe three or four days behind and would catch up with the main body just, you know, any moment now. While in reality, it would be months before Crook would see them again, and in the meantime, his reputation would suffer. And rumors were circulating among the Apache scouts that Crook had actually given these Chiricahua Apache that were staying behind permission to increase their stock of horses by raiding Mexican settlements, which was both untrue and even more damaging to Crook's image. These leaders honestly wanted to find the roughly 100 or so Apache still in Mexico, including Hua and those with him, and bring them up along. However, they also apparently decided that they wanted to make another stab at recovering any Chiricahua that the Mexicans had captured during the past couple of years. But it's unclear when they made these plans and whether they communicated it to Crook or not. 
Still, Crook's campaign was held initially as a success and trumpeted that way in the press. These accolades would fade, however, when word started to get around that not only did Geronimo and other leaders not come in with the general, but that the army had failed to recover Charlie McComas, the six-year-old boy who'd been kidnapped in New Mexico, whom everyone still thought was alive. But probably worst of all, Crook now had to deal with the backstabbing political machinations of the San Carlos Indian agent, Philip P. Wilcox. While marching up with literally hundreds of people for the reservation, Crook got word that Wilcox was refusing to take charge over them and to issue rations. You know, pretty much his entire job. He claimed that, while incredibly happy for Crook's success, the presence of the warlike Chiricahua would upset the nearly utopian balance at San Carlos that he had worked so hard to achieve. Also, he continued, the other Apache already living at the reservation didn't want to accept the Chiricahua. They wanted them punished for their criminal acts and for their warriors to be sent elsewhere. He might be convinced to take the women and children, however. Oh, and just so you know, he went and told his good friend, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Henry Teller, all about this. Crook was absolutely livid but tried reasoning with the stubborn agent, saying that it was so much better to have the Chiricahua on the reservation than on the literal warpath. In the meantime, he kept marching toward San Carlos. So, what are we to make of Wilcox's refusal? On the surface, it doesn't make that much sense. The relationship between Wilcox and Crook had started out great, with mutual pronouncements of friendship and support. Crook had even written to Teller a couple times just a few months beforehand, praising Wilcox's performance and efficiency. Quote, Our organization at San Carlos is so perfect that scarcely a pin can drop among the Indians without the fact being brought at once to our notice. End quote. He had also written that Wilcox, quote, is not resting on a bed of roses. His every action is watched with malignant eyes, not of Apache, but of people who have been making comfortable livings out of them. End quote. So, there is no outward sign of their relationship deteriorating, though it must be said again that Crook had a habit of keeping a lot of things extremely close to the vest. Now, it's possible that Wilcox grew angry at Crook's unprecedented control of Indian affairs, even at the agency that he himself was supposed to be running. Another historian believes that he had been emboldened by an incident that occurred while Crook had been away planning for his grand campaign down in Mexico. In late April 1883, a vigilante group from Tombstone, calling themselves the Rangers, and enraged at Chato's raid into Arizona, that's what we talked about in episode 96, had ridden onto the reservation looking for some good old-fashioned mob justice. Wilcox had ridden out to meet these men and defused the situation by saying that the men were free to talk to the Apache at the reservation about whether they were connected to the Chiricahua. Since pretty much no one on the reservation was a Chiricahua or a Chiricahua sympathizer, this calmed everyone down and the men returned to Tombstone convinced that the Indian agent had firm control of San Carlos. So according to this theory, Wilcox, solving this minor crisis without any military aid, imbued him with confidence, and it was a turning point for his administration. 
Riding high, Wilcox had talked to the other Apache and quickly got them on his side while Crook was still in Mexico. Before you knew it, he was ready to not accept anyone that Crook brought back with him. He had then written Teller to inform him of his decisions, and his friend had dutifully passed along to the U.S. Secretary of War, Robert Todd Lincoln, yes, that Robert Todd Lincoln, a suggestion that the government hold the warriors criminally responsible for their acts. Teller also passed along a popular idea at the time, that the children be seized from their parents and sent to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania so they could squeeze any Indianness out of them. This flew in the face of what Crook himself was promising the Chiricahua as he was meeting with them, and it could mean bad news for the Apache that were still running around Mexico and had not yet agreed to come in peacefully. And may I just editorialize for a moment to say that these arguments here are why the reservation system never really worked. The Apache would be promised something by a charismatic leader who genuinely wanted peace and what was best for them, and then everyone else would come along and tear up those promises in the name of politics, finances, or whatever ill-conceived humanitarian goals they had. It was a never-ending cycle that we've seen time and time again, and I do not blame the Chiricahua one bit for always being skittish. They knew all too well that the U.S. government was too good at the game of bait-and-switch. Luckily, Secretary Lincoln refused to act on Teller's suggestion immediately, saying that he would make no determination until he personally heard from Crook. Meanwhile, seeing that Crook was still bent on bringing the Chiricahua to San Carlos, Wilcox doubled down, complaining his budget couldn't handle feeding the new mouse and that bringing all those Apache here would lead to rounds of murders, rapes, kidnapping, and robbery. It was all very much hyperbole that didn't strengthen his case, and Really, he didn't even suggest an alternative of what to do with the hundreds of people who had surrendered to Crook. Meanwhile, the general was turning a new shade of red every day as the arguments flew back and forth. He wrote to his division commander that the government needed to step up or hostilities would break out all over again. He also helpfully pointed out that the War Department was not supposed to oversee feeding and caring for the Apache, that was the Interior Department's job, so it was time they got off their backsides and actually did something. Then there was the very persuasive argument that unless the government honored its promise to these Chiricahua, the rest in Mexico would never surrender. Plus, there was always a chance that the 300 people who had surrendered may now see what's happening, change their minds, and flee south of the border once again, and we're all back in the same boat. Dangling the carrot even more. Crook said that this would also endanger any chances of retrieving Charlie McComas, because, yeah, everyone still thinks that's a possibility. Arriving at Wilcox, the railroad town, not the person, Crook turned responsibility for the Chiricahua over to Captain Crawford, and then made for Tucson with Lieutenant Burke and a couple of aides. From there, he headed up to his headquarters in Prescott, where he hoped to be able to play political hardball a bit more easily. When he arrived on June 23rd, he was greeted with a telegram from Secretary Lincoln asking for an in-person meeting to discuss the situation. Immediately, Crook made plans to head to Washington, D.C. In one of those sheer coincidences that history loves so much, June 23rd was also the day that Captain Crawford arrived at San Carlos. Wilcox, the person not the town, 
was of course not present, having made one of his frequent trips to Denver to get away from, well, his job. In the meantime, his assistant had been instructed to not let Crawford or his caravan onto the agency, but as far as I can determine, he didn't really do anything that would stop them. Alarmed about what he might be about to walk into, the night before, Crawford had stopped 12 miles south of San Carlos and held a meeting with the Apache leaders. Sensing their unease over the whole situation, he urged them not to believe a word about the ongoing issue from anyone at the agency, whether they be white or Apache. Which kind of plays into the complaint the Apache told Crook back in episode 95 that they were always getting disjointed information about who exactly they could and could not trust. So, on June 23rd, Al Sieber and his scouts led the Chiricahua across the Gila River and onto the agency, with one of the scouts reporting that a gauntlet of White Mountain and Sibiku Apache lined up on either side of the path to watch. The next day, after getting some real food and a new uniform, Crawford held a conference with the Apache who were already at San Carlos to take their temperature about the addition of the Chiricahua. Crook had dismissed the notion that the Chiricahua were unwanted out of hand, but Crawford wanted to see exactly what he was getting into. And despite the temperature reaching above 115 degrees, Crawford sat with leaders from the White Mountain, Tonto, San Carlos, and Sibiku bands. These universally said that they respected and trusted Crook, and knew that he had their best interest at heart. And it was that respect for Crook that trumped whatever goodwill Wilcox had managed to gather in the last couple of months. After all, Crook had marched into the mountains to parlay with the Apache, while Wilcox had taken off for Denver just because he didn't like the weather. Crawford found that these band leaders were not vehemently anti-Chiricahua like Wilcox had said, though they still harbored some doubts. The recent invasion of their reservation by the Tombstone Rangers, and a number of incidents going so far back as the Camp Grant massacre, led them to be apprehensive. If the Chiricahua did get uppity again, would it be them that paid the price, like had happened at Camp Grant? They also, with one or two exceptions, did not believe that the Chiricahua still living in Mexico would ever come back. Through this all, the Chiricahua leaders had sat and listened as the other bands expressed their nervousness and willingness to throw the Chiricahua under the bus at the slightest provocation. Afterwards, they each rose and swore that they were tired of running from place to place. They had given their word to Crook, and they would faithfully live up to it. Some even pledged that they would help bring in any of their brethren who were still down in Mexico. So, the matter was settled, at least from the Apache point of view. On the American side, and higher up the food chain, we have more problems. Wilcox, from his comfortable chair in Denver, was furious that the Chiricahua had made it onto San Carlos. So, he did what we all do when we're upset— he complained about it to his best bud. He wired Secretary Teller on June 24th, saying that the troops had forced the Chiricahua onto the reservation. With a terseness that comes from pure anger, Crook would write Teller by saying Wilcox's, quote, report is not correct, 
end quote. The soldiers were there merely as escorts to make sure the Chiricahua got settled, a fact that Teller even eventually agreed with. Not to be deterred, Wilcox had taken the step of refusing to provide rations for these interlopers, but Crook did an end run around him by having Lieutenant Britton Davis draw on stores at Fort Thomas to make sure everyone had enough to eat. So far, this war of wills and words was at an impasse, but things would soon come to a head as Crook made his way to Washington. Now, if I were Wilcox, I wouldn't be so quick to get into a showdown with Crook. The man was immensely popular in Arizona for his original Apache campaign, and was just wrapping up what, initially, was lauded as a great achievement. The New York Herald, as an example of the accolades then running in newspapers across the country, called Crook's Mexico campaign a brilliant success. General Sherman, overall commander for the entire U.S. Army, couldn't agree more, commending Crook for both the boldness of the plan and its execution. Even Mexico got on board, with the U.S. consul in Sonora reporting that the newspaper there was eulogizing Crook and the state of Chihuahua applauding what he had accomplished. In response to these adoring congratulations, Crook issued General Order 10, which gave the lion's share of the credit to Captain Crawford, the other officers, and scouts who had accompanied him. Bold, decisive, sympathetic, and humble? Like I said, there's very little not to like about Crook. In contrast, all that Wilcox had was an inflated sense of confidence from dealing with the Tombstone Rangers and his one ace in the hole, his relationship with Teller. He was about to find that these two things were nowhere near enough to take on someone like Crook. The general met with Lincoln, Teller, and Indian Affairs Commissioner Hiram Price on July 7, 1883 to discuss the military's role when it came to San Carlos. We don't have many details of this meeting, but what we do know is that Crook got his way. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney speculates that Crook probably pointed out that he could simply wash his hands of the whole business, as caring for the Apache was technically the domain of the Interior Department, and in particular, it was Wilcox's responsibility as Indian agent. He may have also brought up the point that we've already mentioned a couple of times. That is, if the U.S. did not live up to its promises when it came to the reservation, it would encourage the other Apache in Mexico not to come in at all. These arguments, plus Crook's unassailable reputation, his knowledge of the Apache, and the respect he carried with them, won the day and both Teller and Price had to acquiesce. The result of this meeting was a memorandum signed by both Secretaries Lincoln and Teller. What this agreement did was formalize the understanding that Wilcox and Crook originally had back when they had been all buddy-buddy. So Crook, or rather his appointed men, and the army would have charge concerning the Chiricahua rations the Apache Scouts, and the Apache Police Force. The Chiricahua would be placed on the reservation at a place of Crook's choosing, anywhere except the actual San Carlos Agency. Wilcox was relegated to continue feeding the various Western Apache bands that he had been since he got the job, but other than keeping books and adjudicating civil issues, he was basically iced out of management. 
That's okay, seeing as the Indian agent, like many of his predecessors, was indifferent at best toward his charges. He also tried to be in Denver whenever possible, especially during the summer, making him, in Sweeney's words, one of Arizona's earliest snowbirds. So the showdown was over and Crook had won, and he let everyone know it when he arrived back in Prescott, issuing a summarization of the memo in General Order 13. As more august men than I have pointed out, this memorandum seemed to have cleared up everything, but in reality it solved nothing. No matter how clearly the lines were drawn on paper, that was never going to help the situation on the ground, where things were fluid and often required cooperation from both the civilian and military authorities. Plus, Wilcox may have lost, but he was still the Indian agent, and now he was a very angry Indian agent. All this agreement really did was lay the groundwork for future confrontations between Crawford, Wilcox, and everyone else who followed after them. Speaking of Crawford, once he was informed of the situation, that he was basically in charge of all the Chiricahua, he got right to work. He and the few officers who were assigned to assist moved at once into the two-story building that former Indian agent Joseph Tiffany had built for a school. He also requested that the 3rd Cavalry Company be transferred from Fort Thomas to San Carlos to work under him. Soon tents were set up and army men were acting as clerks, storekeepers, and hospital stewards. This wasn't the most glamorous assignment in the service, and most of the men were not thrilled with the posting. They all took to calling San Carlos Hell's 40 Acres, which we talked about three weeks ago, and one officer recalled that the posting's only redeeming quality was its winter climate. Crawford did his best not to let the enormity of his assignment get to him. Known to the Apache as Tall Captain, Crawford was a man after Crook's own heart. Capable, brave, honest, and well-respected. In fact, all the written descriptions of him are downright glowing, which makes his eventual fate so tragic, but whoops, spoilers. He began his new assignment by focusing on the top complaints of the Chiricahua. The first is something we mentioned back in episode 95 when we first met Indian agent Wilcox. He had given the post of reservation trader to his son-in-law, John A. Showalter. Since no one else was allowed to bring in goods and the Apache could not leave the reservation except with a special pass, it meant that Showalter could basically charge whatever he wanted and tell anyone who complained to go pound sand. Eventually, Crawford, after listening to the Apache complain about this long enough, intervened and forced Showalter to cut his prices in half. It's telling that Sweeney says that Showalter, and by extension Wilcox, still probably turned a tidy profit despite taking a 50% off the asking price. The second issue was the historical concern of having enough food. We've seen plenty of instances in the past where the Apache had agreed to come to the reservation, but then the rations were nowhere near what they needed to be to sustain them. Which would be a pretty bad problem to have again, as the Chiricahua were completely dependent on rations, as San Carlos had no game to hunt or agave to harvest. This was as much a concern for Crook as it was for Crawford, because both wanted the Chiricahua to receive the same amount of rations as the Western Apache under Wilcox. 
Luckily for both of them, this issue was solved several rungs above them. Secretary Lincoln transferred funds from the War Department's Indian prisoner account, which meant a steady funding source. Every two days, the Chiricahua received their allotted rations, so for all intents and purposes, it was a net positive for them to be under the War Department than the Interior Department, where they were supposed to be. But beefing up food and cutting down on price gouging was not enough for Crawford. He also had to get the Apache to trust him as they trusted Crook, and to expect fair treatment from him. While it wasn't the whole battle, his response to two situations helped him earn a lot of cachet with the Chiricahua. So in the first, a Mexican man who resided in New Mexico arrived at the reservation in the summer of 1883, looking for his son, who had been carried off by Apache a couple years earlier. It was quickly determined that the boy was living with the Cheheni elder Nana. Nana, his wife, and the child were brought in, and despite some dissembling on the part of the older chief, the Mexican family was reunited. And that's great and all, but the key is what happened next. Just a few hours later, an Apache from Loco's band showed up at Crawford's office, telling the officer that his sister had a similar tale. During Geronimo's breakout in September of 1881, the woman's daughter had gotten separated from the rest and had been found by the cavalry in the Dragoon Mountains. She had been given to Marichilo Grijalva to raise, where she had been for the last couple of years. These Apache now wanted their child back, and to a lesser extent, to see if the tall captain would give them the same kind of treatment he had just given the Mexican family. After consulting with Crook, Crawford did decide what was good for the goose was good for the gander, and once the mother had proven the child's kinship, she was returned. Despite this justice being done, Crawford does let us know in his personal writings that he is a man of his times, as he states that he believes it would probably have been better for the girl if she had stayed with the Grijalvas. But, you know, as far as 19th century racism goes, that's pretty darn good. The upside was that it did tell the Chiricahua that this was an honest man they could deal with, and Crawford would write, quote, Indians feel better satisfied than before, end quote. And that's where I want to leave things this week, as Crawford was getting settled into his new supervisory role at San Carlos. Because though he had done an admirable job so far, dealing with the Chiricahua was always going to be a tightrope act. As much as things were hunky-dory now, he still had to contend with an Indian agent who was actively hostile and trying to undermine Crook's aims, a wary civilian populace who didn't understand why the army wasn't just massacring all these savages then and there, and the Chiricahua who were as skittish as deer when it came to the Americans overseeing them. Plus, Crook and his peace policy were about to come under heavy scrutiny and eventually fire, for the fact that it had been months now and there was no sign of Geronimo or any of the other Apache leaders who had stayed in Mexico. So join me next week as we follow up with those Apache still south of the border and find out the reason for their endless delays. And we'll watch as Crook finally gets fed up and sends envoys saying that the time to come in was now. Now, 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 now. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen. And you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Arizona.
Goodbye.